This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello all. Welcome to another episode of Armchair Cricket Podcast, a podcast focusing on test cricket by Armchair Critics of the Game. I'm your host Ajit. In this very special episode, I have a very very special guest on our podcast, a former England test cricketer, Jack Richards. Hello Jack, welcome to the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hi Ajit, how are you? I'm uh, more or less recovered from a bout of an interesting flu. that i caught not the dreaded one over the last couple or three of years uh, the more garden variety as it's called these days potentially you may hear a bit of it in my voice so i apologize for that in advance you sound okay for me so i hope my voice will uh, bear with me through the uh, recording now before we actually get into who jack richards is maybe we should see what a certain cricketing site has to say about him jack richards was a neat and efficient wicketkeeper taller than most at 5 11 whose excellent footwork and agility allied to his effective middle order batting made him a genuine england contender we pass a few of those things so he hammered 133 in exactly 4 hours and ended an ashes series with 264 runs at an average of 37.71 somebody who's been at the top has seen cricket and we are very happy and i must say blessed to have a former test cricketer with us on this podcast it's always been a dream of mine we'll get into first where you started with your cricket where you started learning cricket because i understand it was at penzance so would you like to take us through the journey of how you started cricket and how you learned your cricket yeah well you're correct i started at penzance penzance is on the southwest point of england very close to land's end and i started cricket at school basically so i played at the uh, under 11s under 12s under 13s for, for the grammar school I went to and at the local club Penzance Cricket Club I played uh, under 16s and under 18s at that time and my development became very rapid because I can remember um I used to be known for riding horses to a de- to a degree and in the summer I'd also try to drive off some matches so I can go to the gym garden but then yeah um I suddenly became quite good good at cricket and believe it or not was very lucky to get involved in cricket and it might be an interesting story for you Ajit um i played for the penzance grammar school under 15s and the teacher in charge of the of the cricket team did not like me very much but we were by far the the best cricket team in the area so when it came to local trials um mr tucket the teacher in charge of the cricket picked out nine names to go forward to the trial so that left two names from the team who didn't go forward and funny enough I was one of those two names who were not selected for the trial to go through through the west cornwall under 15 trial mm-hmm. on the day of the trial um mr tucket was ill so could not attend so the rugby coach the rugby teacher took over um because I also played rugby he called me into his office he said why are you not going for the trials well, I said well sir i think mr tucket doesn't like me very much i'm maybe a bit disruptive for him he says rubbish go home get your kit you're in the trial 
So I went to, went to him, got my kit, got in the trial, and that year, that year, got into the Coma under 15s, went away on tour, saw that I was by far the best keeper by long shot. And the rest is history. I, I got a trial with Surrey and Middlesex, and Surrey offered me terms the next April. So I became, and I left school in 1975, in June 1975, to become a uh, cricketer at Surrey County Cricket Club. So that was my growth from there, from Cornwall. Must be quite dazzling for somebody coming from Cornwall all the way suddenly to be selected by Surrey, a much storied cricketing club, to get a contract with them right away. I think, yes, but I think also I was very lucky. The coach at the time from Surrey was Arthur McIntyre. He was, you, you might not know heard of him, but you might have heard of Godfrey Evans. Oh, yes. But he was, the, he was the reserve keeper to Godfrey Evans on numerous tours and, and for England. So he was a very good wicketkeeper coach. And he was a pure wicketkeeper. And I think he could identify that I was a wicketkeeper because I started Surrey, no matter what people might say, as a pure wicketkeeper, I couldn't bat to save my life. Mm. Um, I think my first five innings for Surrey Young Cricketers were five singles, and that was it. So I could not, I wouldn't really know which end of the bat to hold. But I could keep wicket. And Surrey had a problem because they had two top spinners Patrick Pocock, the off spinner, played for England, and Intikab Alam, the Pakistan, wow. ex Pakistan leg spinner and captain. And these two people were very, very difficult to keep to at the over at the time, which was more of a turning wicket. And I think they had an eye for to find a young keeper to be able to, to keep to them. And in fact, that is what happened. Although I only played, I think, 10 second, second 11 games. Mm. When it came down to the first team keeper, a guy called Lonsdale Skinner, he was really struggling Again, with the spin and with the one day, he was also struggling a little bit with Jeff Arnold, who, had, who used to make the ball wobble and dip. And that made my rise to the first team at Surrey, because I played Surrey in first the first game, I think in 1977 against Warwickshire, the real first serious game. And um, and I'm sure the main reason why is I, I proved that I could keep, to the, keep well to the spinners and stand up to the medium paces and also be able to take Jeff Arnold easily. And that really gave me my breakthrough into first-class cricket. Lovely. Would you have any interesting stories from your time in Surrey? Time at, time at Surrey where you played with, you know, you mentioned already some big names. Maybe you saw Mickey Stewart, right? Mickey, Mickey Stewart. Stewart, yes. Maybe you saw him. Maybe you have some good stories, um, as they call it, locker room stories these days, where you saw some other side of the same character, a very serious character on which was much more jovial or vice versa and so on. Well, I think one of the, I think one of the funniest stories I've seen I, I had, and it, um, you remember Michael Holding played for Lancashire. Yeah. And in those days, county cricket was tough. Each county had a two or three overseas players. You know, Michael Holding, Malcolm Marshall, Clive Rice, Richard Hadley, Wayne Daniel, just to name it, Joel Garner, Viv Richards, you name it, Mike Proctor, mm-hmm. Zahir Abbas. Fantastic, uh, fantastic cricketers all playing county cricket, so standards are quite high. And the oval had just been the oval wicket had been dug up to make it quick. So our two opening bat- batsmen then was a guy called what guys called Graham Clinton and Alan Butcher. Alan Butcher played one test of England against India, 
and is the father of Mark Butcher, the, the Sky commentator, and also England batsman. Mm -hmm. So they made a pact. They knew the wicket was going up and down. So I said, look, um, maybe this is going to be a good idea. Why don't we share the problem? So, you know, when uh, we're not just going to stay at one end, we're just going to share the difficulties with the holding or the fast bowlers and work as a work as a team. So we're playing Lancashire. Michael Holding came in, bowled to Butcher, or some necktie bowling, really fast, very quick, and he managed to see through the over. And the next the next new ball bowler was Paul Allott. Now Paul Allott was just starting, mm -hmm. and basically was much more medium, medium fast. So he bowled the first ball to Graham Clinton, and it was a nice half volley, and Clinton hit it to the boundary for four. And he went up to Butch, as they did to touch gloves in, the, in those days, which they didn't do in those days, but the talk. And he said, Butch, you know that agreement we made to share the bombs? So you can forget that. I'm going to stay up this end. You can take care of holding. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, right? And well, the holding was very fast and the wicket was very tough. So, it, you know, county cricket in those days was, was, was a tough learning ground. It was hard cricket. You know, you end up going to Trumpers to see Clive Rice and Richard Hadley bowling against you on, on, on in those days a green wicket. So, you know, you you it really was tough cricket and you had hard and things out. You need to have the light side to just to get through the days at times. I, I do read all of these funny stories I mean, where, you know, the county pros used to party all night, get your opposition drunk so that you could beat them tomorrow. And then there are these stories about certain people whom you don't want to get drunk. They say when both Botham and uh, Richards played for Somerset, I think the story was, don't get them drunk. You're screwed either way. Because if they wake up with a hangover, one will kill you with the bat or the other will kill you with the ball. What do you do? Yeah, something like this. Well, I can tell you one, one game we played at Somerset, just to give you quickly. Mm -hmm. When we arrived at the team hotel, Ian Botham was at the bar waiting for Sylvester Clark. Uh-huh. And Sylvester Clark, in, Sylvester Clark enjoyed his drink a little bit. And so Ian, Sylvester and, 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 and Beefy went went to have a few drinks together. For the rest of the game, we hardly saw Sylvester Clark. He had a headache was and was sleeping under the under the table while Viv Richards went out and got 204. So, yeah, there's various tactics played in those days. Um, you have to consider cricket was a, was a day in, day out, a long slog. And the odd time, players needed to let their hair down just to relax. But it never, it, obviously, it's more myths than legends. It was never really as... as uh, gung-ho as people say it was just it was day in day out quite hard slog and you had to travel a lot i mean that's the one thing right so you played a county game today and probably tomorrow you started an international game this was this was okay in those days they did that or you started a county game today and probably i remember one specific insta instance where a person who was participating in the finals of a county championship match or the final match which could have given us county the championship i forget the name he went and played a professional football match that evening and he was actually not out on a match deciding 74-75 going into the last day. And I think it was Bogleston. Yes, absolutely. And then next day he comes and completes 100. There was this time where you could actually do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm saying cricket was cricket, was cricket football was football, but you know, you could, uh, you could do it in those days. But they were, there's some really, really top players in county cricket in those days it was it was a it was a good series and central contracts of england have, and i think 
of so much, like we mentioned early on, how many, how much test test matches are going on today, or international matches going on today. You never had that in those days. You know, the England tours, clubs, uh, countries would come over and play sometimes five test matches plus county games. You know, now they fly in and fly out. And uh, yeah, it's slightly different days, but um, it was still good fun, but also, I must say, very hard work. And I'd just like to touch upon about um, playing a county game one day and playing a test match the next day. I had a good record out of Australia, but I only played three more test matches, two ahead of me, which which was not really a bat in paradise, and one at the Oval. And both times I had to come out, I was called up as a sort of um, last minute because uh, of Bruce French dropping out and suddenly they dropped him and I had to come in. But you only had, you had to travel and had one day preparation. And the preparation was just club net bowlers. It was very, I thought in those days, even though you mentioned Mickey Stewart, mm. you know, it's not a way to prepare a, 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 an international game, which which so much money and so much feeling hangs on such a game. So you know, that was my main disappointment playing international cricket at home for England. Mm. I still thought it was amateuristic, to say the least. I see. Well, we should get to the next step, your growth into an England cricketer. I understand you had picked up enough batting to be a proper all-rounder in the sense that England decided to blood you first in one day in 1981. Can you take us through how you got picked for England? 81, yeah, people forget that. But I toured India with quite a promising team. Six test match tour of India and the first test match ever in Sri Lanka. Um, I was picked as reserve to Bob Taylor. Mm -hmm. And for my first game, I did very well. Um, got very good, got glowing reports. This is a, possibly the next Alan Knotts. I then didn't play again for a few weeks. That can happen. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, Bob Taylor felt he needed to practice and to get into things. So basically, I ended up becoming a, wait, a, a waiter, at drinks, you know, the so-called team man. You have to pick up the drinks, do everything, which is fair enough. But it's very frustrating when you feel you're good enough and you don't get the chance. So, uh, it was a great tour, great, unbelievable tour to be on. And even in those days, you were you were you were treated like gods and film stars. <laughs> Maybe more so than now. Well, your debut game in India versus India in Ahmedabad, the one day, yeah. November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty one. So England won the game comfortably with Mike uh, Gatting winning the uh, game for you with a forty seven. Well, it was a. More of a low-scoring affair, 46 overs, just 156 made by India. Do you think this is mostly due to how good the bowling was? And what are your impressions from standing behind the wicket and looking at the England bowlers' bowl? Well, in those days, you had Willis Lever, trying to think of them now. You're, you're, you're reading the book as far back from the mind. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but just, uh, Underwood, Embury, we had a good team out there. Mm -hmm. But Amdabad at that time, I think, was... Uh, it was a very slow, low wicket. And of course, you know, India had uh, Kapildev, Bini, uh, Shastri, a few really good Indian bowlers using the spinners. Right. And of course, you know, cricket, one day cricket was a little bit in his infancy. I think my, my England number is 53. So there's only been 52 cricketers before I ever played one day cricket for England, which, is, uh, which shows how still it was in its infancy in 1981. 
But we played in front of a fantastic crowd. But it was just a low, low wicket. And uh, I don't think I performed very well with the bat because I think I had to go in maybe just for a one-ball slog. I, I can't remember. I remember even bat at all. But all I can remember is Ahmedabad was just a great place. And just to play against the people like Kapil Dev and, and the roar of the crowd because when I came in, Ian Botham had got out or something like that, you know, then the game's won. So, but that was just uh, fantastic. And I've been to Ahmedabad since uh -huh. then. More, more on business on the on the shipping business I was involved with, right? Because there's a big Indian dredging company up there, and I, and I actually had to make one of my first uh, speeches in India when it comes down to dredging and and shipping. So it's quite interesting to go back to Medabad and uh, to experience that again. Slightly different stadium, though. Absolutely. What is it called these days? Modi Dome. Uh, lack of people, or a hundred thousand people and more to sit, and so on. But sure. Yeah. Apart from all the jokes, look, I I'm just curious uh, what you felt. Probably, you know, you didn't get to bat that day because you had such a strong uh, batting lineup with Ian Botham coming in at number seven and so on, right? For you, how different was it playing cricket compared to your, you know, your surroundings where you grew up, where you learned your cricket and then go to India and then debut there and start off your cricket there? Well, of course, it's, it's it's a huge difference. You know, you no matter what you say, any international cricket is a big step up compared to what you're used to before. But when you're in a tour, you get in into a bubble with people. In terms of keeping keeping wicket, I was keeping wicket to Underwood and Embry and people in the nets or in the old practice game or in the games going on. And it's not like in England when you come out from the county cricket, go straight into a test match within one day. You know, we had, we had taught us the England cricket team for, I think, four weeks before we went to that game in Ahmedabad. So, you know, it's not so, so not so different because even when we played the upcountry games, there were also 40,000. Now, in those days, there wasn't so much television. Right. The games were on the radio. And so people really wanted to come and see you. They wanted to see both of them, the great both of them. We'd just become, we'd just done the, the Botham's Ashes, you know, so... He was flavor of the flavor of the month everywhere we went, and they wanted to see the boycott. Boycott was there, and Underwood, Underwood, Underwood. You know all these right. things, and uh, so in that respect, I didn't find it such a, a big thing. I, I was I, I was far more nervous in Australia for my first Test match than I was for my first One Day game in on tour. I do think though it's a lot easier to play games when you're away on tour because the step up is not so big as then when you come back and have to play at home and you go, as I said before, you go from county cricket to test cricket within one day and without at times having the right preparation. Now, I think you already brought the topic up, your test debut. How was it to go debut in front of your old friends, the Australians? I messed it all up, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got bowled out for a full... It was, first of all... When I was told I was playing, I couldn't, I couldn't really believe it because no matter what people say, I still think that they chose Bruce French as the number one keeper. And no matter what happened, they'll still keep to that when it came to the selection of the first test match. Mm. You know, the, the, the tried and, and steady people. But I think the batting was in such disarray. And I actually batted in Perth for about two or three hours to save the game. Mm. And I think that tenacity I showed and that hard work, you know, I was never a natural batsman. I had to really work at the game from the from the depths of Cornwall. When I came to Surrey, I really worked very, very hard. Mm. 
on my batting. I worked just as hard as my on my wicket keeping, but my batting because I knew I had to have a second string to my bow. Um, so that made that that was a, a a big difference. I mean, you came to the test match and it was a bit surreal. I felt when we had the team meeting, the team dinner before things were going past me. I was. I didn't feel it was, it really was a surreal experience and it was, I didn't really enjoy it. I was so nervous. My mum had, my mother had come across to, to see my first note and taken the, the trouble to travel across and things like that. Wow. And she was there in Brisbane and you can't just ignore her, but so you had to do things like after her. And, but at the end of the day, I couldn't really, I, I was nowhere near focused for that first day. Oh, the second day we batted. It was only when we came to keep wicket that I suddenly find myself getting into the game. I found batting, I felt as if I wasn't there. I just, I just lost it and, and mm. resulting in missing a straightforward full toss, which you can do, but that, that was just more nerves and, and than anything else and expectancy and anxiety. When it came to keeping wicket, funny enough, see, I'm a natural keeper. I can catch and, I've never been nervous to keep wicket. Mm. And I think for me, that was just to get the gloves on and get out there and, and to take a couple of good catches, you know, really sealed my situation by saying, well, I've actually kept wicket in the test match. And then to to top that by getting Dean Jones stumped, stumped early on in the eastern in the second inch, which was crucial because, uh -huh. you know, he, he was the man in form. And it was a very difficult stumping. We went, it wasn't a straightforward outside, past the outside edge. It went to an average spirit in, right into the rough, right underneath it. Mm -hmm. I could, I was good at that. I could just keep down long enough to keep, to not to commit to come up. So it just went straight in and we took the bells off. And, and I think that showed to the England team that, that I was a little bit more than just a, a, a wicket keeper who could bat. I was actually a, a wicket keeper who could keep wicket. Indeed. Well, always the first test is a bit tough. There are rarely people who achieve something special on, in their first test. Sometimes even in their first test series. But you did something very special. So, England won the first test match, right? Thankfully. So, you already won the first test match. This rarely happens with England teams when they travel to Australia these days. And the next test, you did well enough as a team that you had 592 for 8 batting first. So, that included 300 and 100, the first 100 for you on a very fast Perth pitch. What are your thoughts on this? We won, of course, as you mentioned, we won a Brit, but that was a big fillip because Beefy's 140 and Daffy De Frey just put on so many runs and then we, we bowled and fielded excellently. Really put it put the ball in the right spot. So that was a great result. And that was my saviour. By winning the game, it gave, gave me another chance. Otherwise, you know, never change a winning team, all that sort of thing. Good stumping, a couple of good catches. Mm. No, team, team morale was good. So he came to Perth and we batted first and Bill Athey and Chris Broad did brilliantly. I think it was like a, it must have been something like a 200-odd partnership. Yes, 223. Um, yeah. And then it didn't go so well because I think if I came in to, at the time I came in, which would have been what I was batting seven, we would have been Five wickets down. Something like that. So, you're five for 339. There was a bit of a small collapse. Yeah. Five, so, five for 339 at Perth is not a good, is not normally a good position to be in. Mm. Mm. And more often than not, as I said, batting behind both of them, if he gets out, 
they're on to you like a rush. You know, they're, they think they've got, you know, both of them. So they'll go through you like nine beats. Absolutely. So I can remember going out to David Gower and just said to Lubo, I said, I don't care what you do. You just have to get me off the mark. Then I can go home. I've got, I've got a run. <laughs> I've got a stumping. I've got a catch. I can finish it. Retire in with dignity. He got me through. Lovely. He got me through. He got me through the one. And then I said, the next target to get me through, Lubo, is 13. Right. And Lord and behold, I got on to 13. Mm. And I've been out numerous times on 13. And I got through there. So he came up to me and said, look, you, I got you through one. I got you to 13. It's all up to you now. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I played well. I actually, yeah, I actually played very well. It's... And the reason why I played well is I've always been used to a bit of pace. I liked a bit of pace. Um, it was a good wicket. They had good bowlers, but it was a good challenge. And I still knew that we were not out the thing. And I just suddenly, I was my my focus was there. I was focused right from the start. My my aggression going to the going to the crease was there. I, I, I was on it. If you understand what I mean. No, I, I know you were in the zone. Yeah. Well, not just in the zone, but we got. Yeah, we put on an awful lot. Yes. And I just think, and, and, and I'm always disappointed, Jeff Lawson was a great Australian fast bowler. I played some great shots to Jeff Lawson, mm -hmm. but I can never find them on the on the highlights. So that's my main disappointment. Uh -huh. that all my good, <laughs> they see me sweeping uh, uh, a couple of spinners, but my great shots, they, <laughs> I couldn't see on the highlights. But anyhow, it was... It was good to get through there and to get through there and not just get 100 and get out, but to get 133. Yes. And the reason I got out was we had to, we had to get quick quick runs. So, yeah, that was that was great. Three of us got 100s and Bill Athey got 96. So I said, that's a big score. Um, we actually, I think we disappointed ourselves that we thought on that wicket, because it started cracking a little bit, that we could bowl them out, but Border played brilliantly. And it just ended up in a bit of a bit of a stale draw really but it was there's some good cricket it was a it was great to play on the on on the Perth wicket because in the one day series I got 50 against the the great West Indies when we we're also uh 70 for six mm -hmm. so uh me and Alan Lamb put on a big partnership so I, I enjoyed that place quite well yeah it was good you you played in an England team from 1981 through to 1988 something like this you were initially part of the one day setup and then also part of the test setup did you see a change in the culture in the England team in general between what you came in and saw at 1981 and then when you were a more seasoned pro at around 1988? Yeah, I think so. Um, David Garrow was captain and David Garrow's best man was Paul Downton. Best man in terms of not best wiki, but best man in his wedding. So they had a very good relationship and I've never never played a game under David Garrow. Um, I'm not saying that that's because I wasn't good enough. I'm not saying, mm. but that's I'm going to say captains pick players they like. And I've been, and I played for England when they had workmen like captains, Keith Fletcher and Mike Gatton. Mm -hmm. And I think they could recognize the fight and the workmanship I could put into it. Yeah, I was very disappointed. I, did, I thought I was better than the number of games I've played. I thought at times I, I was put in, in difficult circumstances and my averages weren't what they should have been. That's one point of view. But then again, when you have to play at Guildford for a week and then go and play at Headingley against Pakistan with Imran Khan and Wazim Akram, yeah, you're you're on the hiding to nothing. You know, it's um, 
I didn't think I was fair on me either. So then I become a bit, that's why you said earlier, I finished when I was very young. I did. I decided, I decided to finish in 1988. Right. Because I didn't want, I was disgruntled by the England setup. I thought the, there's a lot of favoritism within the England selections. I think it still is, to be honest about it. I felt also that they weren't at times professional enough in preparing the team for, for matches, certainly at the home. And I think I, I can remember once being told, I have to go to the pub, become a team man. No, I didn't want that. You know, I was my own man. I'm a great team man when I crossed the white line. Maybe not such a great one, maybe a bad team guy in the dressing room or in the hotel. But when you get, when I cross the line and play for whoever I play with, is it Surrey or England? You won't get a better team man or a better fighter who somebody who will support his team and, and conjole and help. But I don't see why you always have to be considered that off the field as well. Because for me, uh, there's only one good team and that's a winning team, not a, not a team that drinks well or socializes well. So I think that's one of the main things why I didn't play more for England. Look, I can recognize a bit of what you say, uh, but that's more of a, a club team culture rather than a professional team setup where you can always expect that individuals are allowed to have their own lives. A club team is allowed to, you know, play together and also party together afterwards, probably. So probably that sort of professionalism was not yet present in the setup in the time you were playing. And for, Correct. I'm sorry to hear that you might have been a bit ahead of your time then because a decade down the lane, you would have fit, fit in perfectly. And I dare say, your skills, uh, dual skills, being a good keeper and a decent batsman would have been much more useful. I cannot I cannot actually get a good picture of how England cricket was run those days, but I've read a few interesting articles with people like Ray Lingworth at the helm of what what, did, what used to be the TCCB, if I'm not wrong. And, Correct, and so yes. They, they used to try and discard people quite easily. And sometimes... Almost on, uh, if I may use this word, on a tribal uh, instinct rather than on any professional merit. This has happened. And uh, I dare say, you are not the first cricketer I've heard complain, unfortunately, about how unprofessional or how there is a certain amount of favoritism also involved here. And people are sometimes left a bit undone. Did you ever not feel like, still, cricket was your love? You did 10 years of this for your living? And... I don't know how your contacts at Surrey were towards the end of your career where you decided to call quits. Did you ever consider going back maybe after a break of a year or so to go back to Surrey, just kickstart your career again and a journeyman um, cricketer if that's what your uh, lot was going to be? No, because I can. I, I made a very conscientious effort. If I was, I was playing for England in the main position, I'll play for England. Um but my life is not just cricket. My life, I wanted to have a good life and I wanted to have a settled life and I was looking forward to have a family life. And also when I was 40 or 50, I could turn around and, and, look, at, and look at my family and say, you know, I've, I've done well. I've not just done well as a cricketer, but I've also done well in business or in, in, in the other opportunities I've had. And I think that's what life is all about. I think you have to... At that time, cricket was not the highly, it was well paid, but it was not highly paid like it was today. I think it was unprofessional. Selections were, at, or at times it was like a village cricket team going to the pub on the day before a test match. 
a drinking culture, uh, a public school culture for most people. You know, you have to walk down to breakfast with a tele Daily Telegraph. There's very little interest in each other, what they did for things. You didn't really sit down and have a great conversation. Yeah, so, you know, I felt that I needed to secure a future. I'd left my studies early to become a professional cricketer, and so I needed to find security after cricket. Mm. So, Aaron, in those days, you had to beg to be paid well by getting a benefit. The benefit you had to arrange yourself. You were awarded the benefit, but you had to arrange everything and do everything yourself. Sorry, cricket club in those days, on the back that they knew I wasn't going to play the next season, cancelled three events at the Oval, costing me a lot of money. Ah. So you see how, how bitter I could be for what the cricket game was about then. And, and, and I think you find the results in selection for England and they sometimes will, will bring one guy in for one test match and then just describe him away. I was never, nobody ever really sat down and talked to me. Nobody ever really said, no, what, I, what, what do I want? What can I do? How can they make me better? How do they want to make me better? Or am I good enough already? There's never these interactions where you could actually talk and open yourself up to what is anxieties, you know. You had Mickey Stewart trying to teach Gladstone Small how to bowl. Gladstone Small was an England bowler. Right. Mickey Stewart was a manager, not even a coach. He was a manager. Um, so how can he tell Gladstone Small how to bowl? How can Mickey Stewart tell me how to keep wicket? Indeed. So that's exactly how amateurish it was. Mm. Um, and there's nobody there to help you or to guide you. So, yeah, is, is, um, was I unhappy? Yeah, because I gave up a lot to go and play for Surrey from Cornwall and I wanted to do well. And was I allowed to do well? No, I had to do well in the way county cricket was. And county cricket was very much a public school boy, semi-professional. Semi, I would call it more like a semi-professional at best. Right. I understand. Well, look, You've done well for yourself outside cricket. And sometimes there are forks in the road we take and it's always a what-if question, but I understand you've come to terms with the decisions you've made. And I'm actually happy to see that. I would always say congratulations on a career that was good. I mean, not everybody gets to play test cricket at the highest level and not everybody gets to score 100 away, right? In an Ashes series. So you've done tremendously well for yourself and what happens and what could have happened, it, as I said, it's always a road not taken. We don't know, but we have to, we have to sometimes be satisfied with our lot and we, we left a, we left something that happened behind and uh, we move on. Yeah. Well, I think that's quite, I think it's an important phase that maybe today's cricketers are a little bit more secure with the central contracts and being able and the, mm. the, the diverse the diverse element of cricket and where money can be made where money can't be made and so it should be you know I've always I've always admired American sport for the way they go about it right and I've always sort of thought that English sport was was poor in comparison but anyhow you know I've had good times out of it it set me up to be able to become also Proud. I wouldn't say successful, but very proud of what I've done since I packed up cricket. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that took me into the shipping business, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I was, I've seen the world. I've traveled over, was it a million, more than, more than a million miles just with KLM. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's just an awful lot going on. And it was just, I think I planned it right. I remember once in Barry Wood, an old England cricketer, coming in the dressing room. And he was not looked after after the game. The, the game did not look after the cricketers. The game doesn't. The game in England does not look after its old players. There's never been a reunion of our Ashes winning team. Never. Now that's incredible, really, if you consider what that brought to the country in those days. That it took us twenty years to win the Ashes again. Since that, not once has that team being heralded or even at a or even at the EC or the ECB put their hand in the pocket say come on guys let's have a reunion let's talk about the good old days it's amazing but nowadays they take more more staff away than they do than I think uh, players nowadays but anyway I'm, I'm I'm very content the way I did it and I also wish I was playing in today's atmosphere of of T20 and the likes that that is just fantastic and i just hope above what hope that we don't just fall down the american baseball we don't the or we don't fall down the american football like it did at the ipl you know cricket has its own standards its own meaning it has its own respect it does hurt me sometimes to see cricket clothing looking like football clothing when it's not really necessary i'm sure I'm sure the powers of E can surely find some decent designer to design some cricket uniforms or cricket kits <laughs> to have them look like a cricket kit and not like a, a some jazz hat, mad, mad hatter's party costume, fancy dress costume. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's the old-fashioned part of me. I still feel cricket must support its tradition and it must support having... At times when it's a test match, the correct clothing is, which has been traditional for the one for the white ball game. I can understand the different clothing, different kind of clothing, but then let's make it, let's give a little bit of class about it, and let's not be, let's not always look at the the case of of yeah, I can say modernism because you can do that and still have a lot of class and make cricket and make cricket a classy event. Absolutely. Now then. If you were to move on, if you were to take a quick look at some of the interesting cricketing events on field. So, what are you making of this uh, India-England test? We've just uh, ended uh, day four and England seem to be firmly in the driver's seat. What do we make of this new Baz ball, as England's new style of play is called? Well, it's proven results. It's got, it's got a couple of players going. I don't think it's got the team going because that's obviously the case. But... Um... Today, when I when today when I was going through your your document, I was looking at, and suddenly I saw one stage England were 106 for 106, and they were 106 for one. The first thing I thought, yes. well, basically, that means the team only has to get 270. That's a doddle. But yeah. but they're there. They've had to have a 157-run partnership to get them there, which is brilliant. Um, I would say I'd prefer for us to have been mostly a little bit less, with, but with 
two less wickets. I'd prefer for our openers to really, again, not give weak wickets away. I still believe that leaving the ball and getting bowled is a soft wicket. Being run out is soft. So I still think England right. are still very soft in the way they play. But when they do hit the ball, they look fantastic. But they're still very, very soft in the way they play it. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head because look, there are three or four really big names that are standing up. You have Joe Root, you have Johnny Besto, you have the skipper, Ben Stokes. At times, it's been James Anderson. At times, it's been Jack Leach with the ball. And Matty Potts hasn't done badly at all for a debut summer. But they do have a they do have some weak points in this team. But you see this change of attitude permeating through the England season and maybe longer into their you know, upcoming seasons as well and maybe giving them some long-term benefits? I think, well, I think you have to look at it closely. Jack Leach got five wickets the other day, four of them caught in the boundary. Right. I'm going to be very, very circumspect in what I say, but... You shouldn't hold back. In India, India have got... A, India, Australia got a far better balanced all-round test attack than England have. I think it's getting better, but at one stage you had, when you've got Leach, Broad, Anderson, that's a very weak tail. No major test side has such a tail like that. But I can say is that Mm. India, let's praise India a little bit, they've come in from nowhere to play this one-off game, and they've still put against very much English conditions against the so-called best two English condition bowlers in the world. You know, with Pant doing fantastically well, Bujara, and without Cody performing, and then most of the main batsmen performing, they've put still a lot of runs on England. I think still India will win. 100 runs to get, around 100 to get tomorrow. 119 runs to get, yeah. And you still think India yeah. have a chance? That's interesting yeah. to hear. So, what do you think they need to get right in the first half of our tomorrow? I think if you look at most games, hmm. when you go through a, 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 a night, when a, 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 you go from one day to another, the game starts again. But Sami and uh, Hartik, they're they're bowling too many good balls. Right. It's a sort of wicket. When you're in, you're in. But you have to get in. If you get in, that's right. So I'm backing that Sammy or Artic will bowl a magic ball tomorrow at some stage, which will uh-huh. which will create England. You've got to come in. And I think our, our captain's just going to go and hit the ball. Right. That I give that a sort of 20% success rate. I think you get 20%, you'll go well. And then the next four times, uh, you might get a 20, 30, but then it'll go against you. And I think these Indian these Indian bowlers are experienced bowlers, bowling under pressure. They're fantastic 2020 bowlers, not just test bowlers. They're fantastic one-day bowlers as well. And they know exactly where to put the ball when it's going on. Did they bowl well today? They bowled some good balls, but they didn't bowl well. They will bowl better tomorrow. And if they get, bowl, if they get a chance, I can't see the England tail holding them out. I just think they're both wicket-taking deliveries all the time. They'll be on them. All right. Then it sets it up for a slightly more interesting chase than I had hoped for. But let's see how it goes. From that test to a test that recently concluded, where Australia comfortably beat 
Sri Lanka had their own game. You know, when uh, Australia tours uh, subcontinent or certain uh, countries tours subcontinent, I dare say even India does it. Pakistan may do it, and so will Sri Lanka at times. This pitch turned from day one. I've heard all sorts of comments about pitches like this, but I have nothing against them. If a pitch can seam and swing all over the place from day one, so can it turn. And we saw this that they packed the uh, teams on both sides with a lot of spinners. But Australia came trumps. So Sri Lanka bat first. They let go of a little bit of an opportunity to make a bigger target or a bigger score. They make two twelve, and how good were Australia when they batted first? How good was the lower order of Australia here? Did you see the test? No, I've not seen. But if I can just surmise what, how I see it, hmm. I think Sri Lanka—they've not really got big stars up front batting they, right. like they used to. Hmm. Um. I don't think, you know, in the in those old in the days when Sri Lanka were steaming and doing well, mm. I could name the team more or less. I don't think I know they, they they don't they don't set the world on fire, but they by nobody wants to see them, nor do you ever see them. So right. I think that no matter what you do in in Sri Lanka nowadays, um, I don't. Th- yeah, I still don't think they've got the bowlers to do it. Um, Australia, though, Green is a big find. He's becoming now an all-rounder, right? which really sets up well. Kouaja up front is doing well. And you can't... And the off-spinner, I've forgotten his name now, you have to remind me. Leon. He Leon. just... Yeah. He, he's just world-class, no matter what surface you know he'll bowl because he's got great loop he's got great spin mm-hmm. and he's a cagey old warrior you know he's done it he's been there he's done it all before he knows exactly what needs to be done and i think the nows the the knowledge they have together it's a fantastic outfit mm-hmm. and you know no matter what happens they have great wiki keeper bats from now as i say green coming in cummins and the others all world class, but also able to bat a little bit now. So they're, you know, they're becoming a, a, a well-oiled unit. Certain things where I think England is still struggling now. I don't think England's got a world-class spinner, with all due respect to Jack Leach. I think he's a great trier. But, I, it, you know, he got 10 wickets the other day, which, you know, I, yeah, it was, that was just bad batting by New Zealand. Um, but one thing I will say, to, to Sri Lanka, if they produced a green one, they're lost even heavier. So, yeah, <laughs> I right. still think they're in transition. They need experience, and it's good they go through it. But you know, teams go through that because they've had such a such a uh, successful decade with all their great stars, and all of them finishing more or less at the same time, isn't it? It's it's going to be very tough for them. Absolutely. I mean, they're definitely going through a transition. They sometimes produce these amazing results but they are yet to deliver consistently. So they'll need a few players to stand up for them. And well, Australia, what I see, whenever Australia tour the subcontinent, they are that much better. They've actually gone back, they've revisited those lessons that they should learn from a previous subcontinent tour. So when they toured India, what they've learned, they'll come and show you that they've learned from it when they tour Sri Lanka next and vice versa or Pakistan. When you see that, that's when you need to be really worried about a team, right? Sometimes it took India a while 
now they think they're on the right track but if you play in any of those sena countries you need to pick up the lessons of what you sometimes learned in south africa it may not directly apply in new zealand but parts of it that are relevant you need to apply it also in new zealand and then parts of it also in england and and so on right so Correct. i'm just putting uh, the whole world of cricket into to you know just two boxes asia and sena it's not that black and white but at the end this is what i really like about australian cricket the hard gritty nature and i think a lot of work is done behind the scenes where analysts coaches they sit with players and they go through these things also i give a lot of credit for who patrick commences and the sort of job he's done with this australian team he's yet to lead australia to a defeat apparently in tests that's quite something already i agree right all right so i i think we can expect a lot more special things from this australian team going through the years at least the test team i mean i think we should wrap up our chat by telling our listeners where we met so we, where we actually met was in the first netherlands versus west indies odi at amstelveen and jack was just standing by a tree i remember i asked jack to give me a bit of space because i was going to do a vlog to put on twitter i i hardly knew who i was speaking to it was this former international england cricketer and after i shot this vlog of mine he was just patiently standing by the street it was raining there was no cricket and then we had a short chat that's when i got to know who he was i i was actually quite flabbergasted because you don't get to simply meet a england former england test cricketer just like that and i was very lucky to encounter him <laughs> so and i must say i'm privileged as i said to have you on the interview again i would like to understand your thoughts on where netherland cricket is going probably you've been watching netherland cricket for far longer than i have i've been watching netherland's cricket since 1979 holy cows all right i've played here a couple of years in the 1989 but i think um dutch cricket needs support i think dutch cricket uh can be good i think it's lost its way over numerous years and they need to find a winning team in terms of the national team and they need the clubs to find a winning formula to try and get in very difficult circumstances with all the things that's going on the past 3 or 4 years to get membership and cricket to be excited amongst the youngsters and the clubs and i think this is today very difficult because i think um youngsters and have a lot of other elements they can get get involved with which may be more exciting than cricket but above all I was, what disappointed me on that day is that you had the west indies came over and it just goes to show with more or less a second team uh-huh. uh which I don't think does Holland any good whatsoever. I think the associated countries like Holland um need to play need to learn the lessons like they faced with with England in the series after. Mm-hmm. And West Indies didn't they did it but they didn't do it in India they didn't do it hard and if it was it looked to me like just a friendly game rather than a being a hard tough international game. and the dutch and the dutch cricketers have to start playing hard international cricket and not just be expected to go for a world record like they did against england or and now there's some good performances there 
But I think over the years, they've wallowed in mediocrity. I think if I look at the attitude when I saw the England games and the warm-ups, I still felt, I saw nothing there which was down to a high performance. I thought it looked, again, a bit like a, a club game, but with 8,000 fantastic English supporters who came over and made three fantastic games. <laughs> and I think it just taught Holland a big, big lesson. And it just goes to show that what they've been doing is nowhere near good enough. And what they need to do is to work on making the national team as competitive as possible. Hmm. Maybe you can't quite do it with the bat. Maybe you can't quite do it bowling. But at least you can do it in the field. You can do it in the mindset. You can do it in terms of the warm-ups. And that was my biggest disappointment. On the other hand, there were some great performances in there. And I, and I still think that they've got some talent, which they should persevere with, but make these guys. I mean, so I can't believe in international cricket, there's some very basic um, talented cricketers, but basic technical flaws, the left-handed opening batsman. You know, you can see from a mile off, he, his, 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 bat, his, his bat is away from his bat is the hands away from his body. Mm-hmm. And he moves to Lake. You know, that's, that's never going to work. So where is the coaches in Holland to get this guy? They, they're, they're more or less full-time cricketers. Mm-hmm. So where are they then to, to sort this guy out and, and get him in line enough for international cricket? I can also say the same about the two English openers, by the way, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Holland, in my respect, is a very disappointing is to see how they performed, how they went about it. It was great to see England come with a full team, more or less. Fantastic. It was great to see so many supporters there. Fantastic. Mm. It was a big shame to see that they couldn't get the covers on properly, which affected the second game on Sunday. Disappointing. You know, these are the small things that Holland has to get right. Right. And above all, and above all, why did Holland not give school kids free entry? Well, this is the whole fun part. The first ODI that we two attended, I don't know if you attended more games afterwards, I didn't. I was told by a KNCB official, the first game had free entry for kids. I don't know if all the schools even across the region knew this, let alone across the country. It's a school day. They're not going to come on a school day. It's Friday. Ah. They have to go to school. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that they had some time off. The kids had some time off during those uh, months, or the, if I'm not wrong, those weeks. But maybe I could be mistaken. Yeah, but you're, you're right. There's no, there was no real... Well, I don't think there's very much marketing at all about the games. Um, in England, uh, TV, Sky TV and everything, they marketed the games and, and advertised it. I didn't see anything on any Dutch TV whatsoever. Nothing. So, you know, and I didn't see anything starting on the website either. So I think they've got a lot to learn when it comes down to marketing and to get the message out, and to and to and and to and they have to sometimes invest in the youth. And in that respect, if it means giving it away and getting clubs to bring even a competition for ten tickets for each club and run a competition so that keeps the kids in, um, involved. You know, they have to work out a cricket test, and these ten kids get free tickets. 
you put them all in a separate seating and you educate them. That's it. Mm. But when you have a cricket ground which can't cover the wickets correctly, and you have a scoreboard that nobody can read, you're going to be struggling, aren't you? Let's face it. If you can't get your basics right. Mm. That, that scoreboard, scoreboard was another story. I don't <laughs> want to go there. I would like to end the interview by asking you one question. You came over to this part of the world having some familial connections when you were fairly young. Did it never cross your mind to try and play in these countries? Netherlands or Belgium? Try and play cricket for one of these countries? Maybe Netherlands, I think. Have no, because when I came over here, I played for VOC for one season, but my daughter was just born. So that means I had to work during the week and then play at the weekends. That means I had no right. time for my family. So I, I did it as a promise for one year. The second year I stopped because I have a family. I wanted, and I wanted to concentrate my, my, my free time on the family. And once I finished cricket, my pure concentration and focus was to, was to make myself a better person when it came down to business and to ensure security for the rest of my life in work. And, you know, I managed Belgium. I took, I took Belgium uh, as, a, as it was a bet with, with, uh, with an Antwerp uh, official. Said that, uh, I said I could take them to the Royal Cricket League. And I did. I took Belgium all the way to Samoa for the Royal Cricket League. That's another story. Um, we, wow. won the European, we won the European Division Championship here which enabled us to go to Samoa to, to participate in the World Cricket League. So I didn't play, but I was a manager and technical guru, whatever. So, you know, we did well there. Um, so, no, I've never, you know, uh, I've never been in, in, enticed enough to, to really get deeper, deeper involved. I've done some coaching here. I've done some wicketkeeper coaching just to help them out and things like that. Mm-hmm. But now I'm in Belgium and I've had growing kids and I was, suddenly my business acumen was growing and I needed more, so I needed more time off. I needed, when I came back home from travel abroad, I needed to see the kids. So, you know, cricket is time consuming and uh, uh, so that's sort of, so family was my focus. I've been married now for 40, 42 years nearly. So. Oh. Yes. So we had a very much of you know, my three kids now out of the house, but we had three kids growing up, and uh, I just wanted to make sure I was around them when they grew up. Well, all I can say is I dare say it was probably a loss for Netherlands and probably also for Belgian cricket that they couldn't get you. But that's all right. These things happen. Anyway, thank you very much for a wonderful, wonderful chat. And uh, thank you for accommodating you know, my uh, croaking, breaking voice. I've, I've had a lovely time chatting with you. Chatting. Thank you very much. Well, uh, feel free when you want another when you want another chat. Thank you very much. I wish all our listeners a very good day wherever they may be listening from. Until the next episode, a goodbye from me and my guest Jack. Bye bye. Goodbye. Thank you. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast. <laughs>